uh, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as I said earlier, uh, we'll be going through John chapter 9. So if you want to grab a Bible and kind of just get there and hang out, we're just going to be going through almost verse by verse for John chapter 9, the story of the man who was born blind is what that's often called. John chapter 9, we're going to be just rolling through that whole thing. So just kind of set it open next to you, right? Or we'll, we'll put some of it up on the screen as well. Um, but as you kind of get there, I have, to, I have to do it. This is the Sunday closest to St. Patrick's Day which means my annual tradition of some sort of Irish joke has to be told. It has to. It was written in the old magic. It must be so. So, <clears throat> if you'll allow me a tale, I recently heard a story of, uh, of three men who went to a pub together. It was an Englishman, a Scotsman, and an Irishman. And, and they walked into the pub, and they all ordered a pint of Guinness. And, and as the, the, the pints were served up, there were some flies going around in the bar, and, and a fly landed in each of their drinks. And the Englishman said, oh, certainly not. This is preposterous. Well, this, uh, this simply won't do. I say, barkeep, barkeep, pour me another one. I, I shan't be drinking this one, right? And as he said that, the Scotsman is listening, and he starts laughing. He's like, oh, it's just a little fly. What's wrong with you? I've had worse things for my Sunday dinner, right? He just wanted a little drink. Eh, who can blame him, right? He pulls the fly out of there, throws it to the side, downs the Guinness. But then they hear this commotion down at the end by the Irishman. They look down, and he's got the fly by the wings, and he's shaking it, going, Spit it out, you wee little beastie. It's a God's elixir. Can't spare a drop. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the chance to laugh and have a good time. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here. Lord, I thank you for the chance to be here. I thank you for the chance to share your message. And Lord, I am just an ordinary, everyday person and I pray that you are at work in this time. I pray that your words are spoken. I pray that your Holy Spirit is known. I pray that your truth is proclaimed. I submit myself, and I pray that all would be willing and humble to do the same. Lord, speak in this place so that we may hear. In your name we pray. Amen. So John chapter 9. It is, uh, it's often called the man born blind, the Jesus healing him, right? The context here is important, though. Uh, John chapter 9, Jesus at this point is in Jerusalem. He came there in, back in John chapter 7 uh, for what was called the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is, isn't a really well-known uh, activity, but the Feast of the Tabernacles had two big things associated with it that really come to life in our story today. First, with the Feast of the Tabernacles, is they would light these candelabras up on the Temple Mount so that the people all around could look towards the temple and see the light, the metaphorical light of God, and it would be kind of their guiding light, this reminder of God being present among them using this light, right? Just like we light candles here in church, it was kind of that same thing. And then the second part is water from the pool of Siloam, which sounds familiar because I just read about it in the gospel. The pool of Siloam, they would take it and they would pour it down the temple steps so it would flow out into the city to show God's providence for the people flowing out, right? So keep those two things in mind. The candelabra is showing the light of God for the people to look upon, and then the pool of Siloam, the presence of God, the providence of God flowing out from the temple. So let's pick up verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, again, in Jerusalem, he saw a man blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Which always seems a little callous, because the guy's blind, but he's not deaf, right? He can hear them ask this question. He's like, you're talking about me, aren't you? Like, you can just imagine, but he's probably used to this. So they're, they're asking this theological question about, like, how sinful is this guy? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the second time in a couple of different chapters where he has said, I am the light of the world in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles. You can see how he's drawing a parallel between the candelabras, which represent the light of God, and I am the light of the world. You can see why he's starting to get attention from the religious leaders going, what is this guy claiming? It's also worth noting that he says that we must work during the day because night is coming soon. We know from later on in the reading that this day is the Sabbath. And if he had just waited until nightfall, he wouldn't have this whole chaos of the, your healing on the Sabbath. If he had just waited just a little bit, but he says, no, this has to happen right now. He says, I am the light of the world. Picking up at verse 6. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. And I always wonder, did, did this man who was blind know where that mud came from? Because <laughs> he was blind. So did he like, was it, or did he just think, oh good, he got some mud. I wonder why it's wet. Like what is the... If it, did he know that this is, this is Jesus' spit, right? But he sends him off to the pool of Siloam to go and wash. Now, this seems very much an odd miracle. It seems like an odd thing for Jesus to do, because usually Jesus' water into wine just says a thing and it happens, right? Pick up your mat and go. He, he heals people with his words all the time. Why all of a sudden is he having a little art fair project? Why is he, like, making these mud pies? What is he doing? Well, you have to really understand some Jewish law context. See, the Pharisees, who we'll encounter momentarily in this story, they, we hear that. We hear Pharisees and we think like the villains. I talked about this during our Wednesday Lenten service, that we hear Pharisee, we think, oh, villain, like vaudeville, boo, hiss, like these are the bad guys. But they weren't really. They were the religious leaders of the time. They were the ones who were charged with interpreting God's law and helping the people to understand God's law. Because right, because if you think about Judaism is a religion based essentially on law, there isn't the gospel, there isn't grace within it, and so they have to really live according to God's word and his law. To know what that means is crucial. And sometimes you encounter a law like honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's one of the commandments. That's a big one, right? And they're going, what does that look like? What does it mean? Uh, what, uh, what kind of things can I do and can't I do in order to honor the Sabbath day, right? It's like when I'm driving and I wonder, like, how far into the intersection do I have to be so that I'm not running the red light? Like, there's a whole, there's some nuance there. And I'm sure some of you are legal people and you're going to tell me afterwards. That's fine. Um, but there's some nuance. And when it comes to the Sabbath day, the Pharisees were in charge of saying, like, okay, you can take this many steps. You can do this action. You can do that. They had an entire set of laws called Shabbat 108, they listed them all out, about the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was crucial because, again, it's a very vague law, and it's also about honoring God. 
And some of those laws were about healing. Now, we hear healing, and we think miraculous healing. We think Jesus doing his thing, right. But for those times, healing was just like healing, taking medicine. Because healing at that point wasn't just, hey, take two, call me in the morning. You had to create it. You had to grind something. You had to, to make a paste. You had to make a salve out of something, right? So there were literally rules against making these medicines, against grinding things, against making mud. And they even considered saliva to be uh, like a healing property. So there were rules against using saliva, Jesus is breaking all these rules when he puts the mud with the spit on the guy's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He's breaking no fewer than five sabbatical laws that are set. Now, these laws, I should clarify, are not laws that were in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. These were laws as established by the Pharisees, trying to explain God's law. They're what's called the Mishnah, the oral tradition. And so they're building all these laws and saying, if you, as long as you don't break these, you won't break the big one in the middle, right? I've talked about this before. And so he's breaking all these rules by doing this, and it seems intentional. It seems like he's doing it on purpose, because why else would he rub spitty mud on this guy's eyes? Well, let's see what happens here. He washed, he went and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him, this being the blind man, uh, before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said no, but it is, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? The man, he's, this is how he answered. The man called Jesus made mud. Again, we don't know necessarily if he knows how the mud was made, but he made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. I didn't get a good look at the guy. Because asking this poor man, hey, where is the guy who was blind when he rubbed, like, I, I can't pick him out of a crowd. You guys couldn't even recognize me just two verses before, and you've been around me my entire life. How are you asking me? I was blind when he did the thing, right? He responds, I don't know. So they... They bring him to the fuzz. They go to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who has formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day, and therein lies the problem, that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So Pharisees asked again him how he received his sight. So they're, they're questioning this, this poor person. They, he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. I love that he's getting shorter and shorter. With Like, guys, this is... I don't know what to tell you. Mud, walked, wash, see. I don't know what else. Like, why do you keep questioning me? Right? And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And according to their perspective, they are 100% right. According to what they know, according to what they believe to be true, they are correct that he is not honoring the Sabbath according to the oral and then at one point written law of the Pharisees. And you have to remember, they had to deal with the reality of like the magicians in Egypt with uh, the Exodus, that they were able to perform the same miracles that Moses did on behalf of God. And so they're saying like, is this guy a sorcerer? Is he a magician? He's doing these things, but something is off. He's breaking the law. We don't like this. And so they say, how, how can he do this? Because he, he was breaking the Sabbath. But others said, because there's some disagreement. 
How can a man who is a sinner do such sign? And there was division among them. So again they said to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he responded, He is a prophet, which means that he interprets God. He is kind of on behalf, a liaison for God. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Pause there. There's something that, that as I was reading through this, this has never hit me before. I've preached on this three or four times before. It's never struck me. Why did they call the parents? There's some indication, there's some speculation. I'm not the only one who thinks this. That this was a young man, probably a teenager, possibly as young as 13. Because they're calling the parents, and we see here in just a moment, they say he is of age. So there's some question as to whether he is of age and can speak for himself, whether he is a man or not. And in Judaism, that's 13 years old. So most likely, he's a young man. This is a teenager that these Pharisees are confronting and cornering and belittling. And we know he's a teenager. We'll see why later. (laughs) So he says he is a prophet. They come, they call the parents. Uh, is this your son who you say was born blind? We're in verse 19. How does he then now see? His parents answer, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. And no, we know now he sees how we don't know. We, know that he op- who, we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus be the Christ, that he would be put out of the synagogue, which tells us that the fear of the synagogue, the parents were also Jewish. So they're talking about Jewish leaders. Therefore, his parents said he is of age and ask him. What a terrible statement on the societal view of the church, of the religious leaders, that rather than getting to celebrate their blind son suddenly being able to see, Rather than throwing a party and and having a great time because finally their son has been healed, instead of reacting with joy, they are forced to react with fear. May the church never be that in this world. And so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. That's another way to say give your testimony. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear again? Do you guys want to become his disciples too? That's how we know he's a teenager. (laughs) That is 100% a teenager answering. That's a teenager going, oh my goodness, you guys just won't. Okay, do you guys want to follow him as well? Like, what, what are you on about? He is so sarcastic, possibly the sassiest person in the entire Bible, and I love it. So this teenage kid is being confronted by these Pharisees, and they keep pestering him because they want to go after Jesus. They want confirmation that he made mud and rubbed it on a guy's eyes and worked on the Sabbath. And of course, he comes back with this great sassy line, like, oh, are you guys looking to become his disciples? Yeah, not, not so much. Here's how they respond. They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses, putting Moses and Jesus in direct opposition of each other, saying you can't be both. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered again, the teenager, he's feeling himself at this point. Why, this is an amazing thing. You don't even know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that someone who had, who anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, you could do, or he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Again, this teenager or young man, whatever, is responding saying, hey, hey Pharisees, isn't this what you teach? Don't, don't you teach that, that if you're not of God, you can't perform miracles? Well, it seems like this guy has performed a miracle because I can see you right now. So logically, it sure seems like he's from God. And what do they do? They kick him out. They say, you're not worthy to be here. What is so sad is this young man has spent his entire life on the outskirts of society. He spent his life as an outcast thinking it was because he was blind. Thinking because his physical infirmity, what was, what was keeping him from being part of society. But what the Pharisees show, it wasn't about him at all. It wasn't about his blindness because now he can see and still they kick him out. It was about them. It was about their judgment. It was about their condemnation. What a sad state of affairs. They cast him out. The story ends this way. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Remember, he started off, This is Jesus. I don't know who he is. He just washed my eyes, and now I see. He's a prophet was the next step. And now he's saying, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So there are three things that I think that we should learn from this story. And the conversation goes on, by the way. Our chapter and verse system kind of leaves this one hanging in the middle. But three things that I think we can learn. The first is the incredible faith of this young man. I'm going to stick with the concept that he's a young man. That he has this newfound faith of a believer. This simple, innocent, hey, all I know is I couldn't see and then I could see, and Jesus was the one that did it. How beautiful is the simple belief and trust of somebody who's new to the faith? Somebody who has spent their life with, with a dam of skepticism up in their, in their heart that suddenly bursts open and grace and mercy and hope washes over them and they feel peace for the first time and they believe. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They're not sure how to wrestle with all the intellectual parts, but, but they believe. And over time, years, decades of Bible studies and devotions and sermons, they get some intellectual backing, an intellectual foundation to understand that faith that they had grabbed hold of, that we believe to be from the Holy Spirit, that mysterious third member of the Trinity, bringing and inspiring that within us. He's the one that tears down that wall. The trouble is, over those years, as we cling to those Bible studies, as we cling to those, those YouTube videos and those sermons that we watch and all those different things, we start to focus more on the intellectual and less on the faith. 
We start to focus more on what we can control and see rather than what we can't see. Blessed are those who believe and yet cannot see. It's like this. It's like a husband searching in the junk drawer for something, right? Wives, you know what I'm talking about. He can see, but he ain't looking right. (laughs) That's us. We can see, but we ain't looking right. We can see, but we're not looking in the right place. Far too often, we're looking at God through a lens of what we can control, what we can understand, what we can comprehend, rather than the faith that doesn't quite comprehend our own mind. Rather than saying, I I don't understand what's happening in the sacraments, but I trust because that's what Jesus said. We listen and look at all the wrong things. We're looking in all the wrong places at our job, at the stock market, at our bank account at our reputation, at our family, at our relationships, or our lack of relationships, or our our definition that the world gives of our identity. Those are the things that we're looking to, rather than saying, I'm going to trust in God. Rather than saying, I'm going to cling on to a a simple faith that that doesn't always make sense, and I kind of wrestle with, but I still, at the end of the day, I believe, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That beautiful, simple faith we can see, but we are looking in all the wrong places. It's this kind of thinking that leads people to say things like, yeah, I'll put money in the plate when the banks are more stable. I'll make an offering when my own bank account looks a little fuller. That's not faith. That's control. And we have to learn to cling on to that simple faith that we see this young man share. The second thing that I think we we can and should learn from this concept is Jesus, who we picture from like the transfiguration. That's the image that we often have of Jesus, right? Like he's kind of floating and holding his arms out like this and like has a look of peace on his face and his his robes are gleaming white and his hair is like L'Oreal perfect, you know? Just like, oh. But Jesus lived in Israel in the first century. Jesus lived in a desert. Jesus walked around and got dirty. He touched beggars. He, he got his hands and reached into the mud and spat on them and rubbed them on a beggar's face. Jesus got dirty. Jesus got messy for us. Jesus got dirt underneath his fingernails to help save us. Us. It's like if after church you're driving home and you pull over in your Sunday finest because somebody has a flat tire and you get out on your hands and knees and you're helping them to change their tire and you're covered and great, but you're still trying to be looking nice. That's Jesus. Jesus is God with dirt underneath his fingernails because Jesus takes the messy and makes it a message. Jesus looks at mud and he sees a miracle yet to happen. Jesus takes the messy, the cross, and does something incredible with it. Our God isn't one who stands back and says, Let it, figure it out yourself, guys. I'll be here when you're ready to come to me. No, Jesus entered into this world, took on the cross, took on the worst thing that humanity could throw at them, this, this form of execution. He turned it into a form of faith, the greatest victory we've ever won. See, Jesus is God who's not afraid to get a little messy to save us. Which leads me to my last thing that I think we should learn today. See, this young man, born blind. Again, we assume probably young. 
His parents are still around. Assumedly, they still love him, but they, they've gotten to the point where they said that begging is his best solution. That's his best way of life. That's his best hope for survival. Not caring for him, not finding another job for him. No, sitting on the street corner and asking people for money. That's the best spot for him. And the townspeople who had seen him his entire life had gotten so used to ignoring him and overlooking him that when it came time to identify him because he could see they couldn't. They're like, I feel like he kind of looked like that. I'm not certain though. They were so used to ignoring him. They didn't even recognize him. But Jesus, what did we see in the beginning? What were the very first words of our reading today? Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Jesus looked at him. Jesus cared enough to break the rabbinical law, to break the, uh, the Shabbat number at 108. He did these things to heal this young man. Jesus saw him. And not only that, it says later, after all the questioning, Jesus went back and found him again. The people in his town didn't recognize him. Jesus found him again. Jesus knew him. Jesus looked at him and said, you matter. The rest of the world may tell you that you're overlooked, that you're not good enough, that you can't amount for anything. Your parents may have given up on you and said, oh, he could have been something, but now he's too far gone. Jesus looked at a broken dream and said, you are my beloved child. My friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, don't let the world lie to you that you don't matter. Don't let the world tell you that, that you have to be better, that you are too far gone, that you have mistakes in your past, that you're not smart enough or brave enough, that you're not strong enough, that you don't have a strong enough faith, that you don't know enough. God looks at you and says, you matter. God knows you, everything about you, and yet still he loves you because you matter. God's willing to enter into this earth, get dirt underneath his fingernails and blood dripping from his hand because you matter. My prayer is that we can cling on to that simple faith, that simple reality that say, I once lived in darkness, I once lived in despair, I once listened to the world and relied on the things of the world that let me down time and time and time again. But now, now I see. Now I know the hope that comes with being a beloved child of God. Now I know what it means to be somebody who has been saved. I pray that we can see God's love, that we as a church can reach out to the margins, to the overlooked, can embrace them and say, you matter because we need to hear that message too. You matter. I pray that our eyes would be opened, that our heart would be inspired, that our faith would be kindled, that we would see that God loves you and you matter. Amen.